I'm, I was hoping maybe we would hear from um, Elaine between prayer and now. Because I believe in checking. Say, hey, what happened? So you keep praying for Pat, and we'll let you know as soon as we can about his heart and what is going on with all of that. We've been in a series about Joseph. And I know all of us have heard about Joseph, you know, growing up. That's one of the stories you hear a lot as a kid in the coat of many colors. And there's been plays, you know, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. There's been movies. Even DreamWorks did a movie about Joseph because it's a great story. It's a great, great story. And what we've been doing is kind of looking at Joseph from kind of some different angles and following that whole story from the beginning to end. And today I want to take just kind of a different angle as we finish that story up. And I'm just curious. How many of you would consider yourself a nice person? Usually every hand goes up. Seriously. Right? Because we all think we're nice. I mean, I, I, it's funny to me. Anytime that you, you hear of somebody, um, you know, that doesn't think they're nice, you're, it kind of catches you off guard. Because we all have this idea that we're pretty good people. I mean, we want to be good people, right? I've, I've noticed this. If you were to walk up to somebody and just ask them, Hey, if, if there's a heaven, so then you're not arguing about if there is or not. You're just saying, if there is, do you think you would go there? Did you know that the vast majority of people say, yeah, sure, they do. And you ask them, well, why do you think that? What, why do you think you're going to go? You know what they do? They, I'm a good person. And you say, really? How do you, how do you measure that? I mean, how do you measure that? I mean, how, how good can you be? I mean, how good do you have to be? I mean, there's a lot of those questions, but usually when you ask somebody... Why are you a good person and why do you deserve to go there? Here's what, here's what we all do instinctively. You look down the row. Go ahead. You can do it now. And you say, well, I'm better than her or him. Right? <clears throat> of course, you're not going to do that today because you're all good and whatever. But don't you do that? That's what we do. It's human nature. Because you're judging yourself by a standard that, that you feel like you can achieve. You set the standard. And when you set the standard, of course, you're going to be good. And you're going to qualify because you've set the standard. And then you're not going to compare yourself to the people who are better than you. You're going to find somebody who in some way, maybe a little way at least, you feel like you're good. And you qualify. The problem with that is it's not our standard that you're measured. By which you're measured. It's not your standard. You don't get to make those rules. If you did, that would make you God. And that would make you the arbiter of all that is good and evil. And that's not how it works. And part of the way we do the standard is we, we do, you're Mr. Nice Guy, but when we do this math problem in our mind, some of us do this. You have this ledger, and on, on maybe on the right side, you'll add up all the good things you do, right? And then on the left side, you put all the bad things. And then the way you put them in there, because you're not going to put them all in so the bad is better than the good, you're going to be good, right? And the good's going to be here, and the bad's going to be here. So some of us do it like that, and what do we call that? That's really called karma. It's not really a Christian concept, but it's the idea that if my good outweighs my bad, then I'm good and I, I get to go to heaven. The problem is, it's not just a math problem, but it's a problematic math because it doesn't add up that way. Because every single one of us, as you walk through life, you're going to find yourself that you're going you're gonna to run into things and things are going to happen in your life and instinctively you'll say, it's not fair because the math doesn't add up. I'm better than that. This shouldn't have happened to me. It should have happened to them. Or it should never happen to me. Because I'm basically a good guy. I'm Mr. Nice Guy. And good things should happen to good people. 
And all of us walk and we live in this, in this dilemma that faces us for, at one time or another. And you're confronted with it and you can get frustrated. And that's normal and that's natural because deep down, we justify ourselves in one way or another, either by comparing ourselves to somebody else or by measuring our good against our bad. And we feel like we should be pretty good. Here's the problem. If you look at scripture, and Psalm 73 is a good place to start, it says, truly God is good to those who are pure in heart. Here's the thing. If you have something bad happen, you feel like, well, wait a minute, God's not being good to me today. But that's our mindset. If you work hard, it's, it's the United States, right? If you work hard, you get promoted. If you study and get good grades, you'll get a good job. See how this works? Even if you think about it, all of Western uh, philosophy and economies are built on that. It's our ethical economy. economy. It basically means you're going to reap what you sow. So if I've done good things, good things should happen to me all the time. But it, it starts to become a problem. It starts to become a problem because the fact is all of us have done things at one time or another that really go in that bad, prop, that bad ledger, right? And the thing is, you all need a savior. And the thing is, we don't get to keep score on all that. We feel like we do. We feel like we should be the one. And we certainly keep score on other people, don't we? If we're honest. We know where they line up. And we know which things we're going to put in the good column and which in the bad for them. And that's just how we do life. The problem is, though, again, we're not the ones who get to keep score. In Galatians 6, 7, uh, Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, Do not be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always, always, always harvest what you plant. Always harvest what you plant. Really, the truth is, God, it's his justice system that we're trying to measure to, not ours. Because the thing is, yours is going to always change. You're going to give yourself a little leeway, but not other people. And they're going to be doing the same thing. And if it, if it was true that everybody got to make the rules like that, then none of us would ever really qualify. But God has a standard of justice that we all have to answer to at one time or another. So let me ask you, what if the math doesn't add up for you? What if you do feel like you're basically good? And maybe, maybe you're in this dilemma where you're thinking, God, it's not fair and life's not fair. And it's not fair not only because of what's happening to me, but I see other people who are getting good things and they don't deserve those. And most of us wouldn't say that out loud, right? And most of us wouldn't even say that to other people because you know what they would do. They'd be like, well, that makes you a little what? Judgmental. Let's go back to that Psalm 73. This was written by Asaph, who was, who was one of David's choir directors and then wrote a lot of the Psalms. This particular Psalm, though, is uh, before we get to this verse right here, I want you to look at that as you're listening to me read the rest of it, okay? It says, truly God is good to those who heart, whose hearts are pure. But as for me, and maybe you, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. And they seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. And they don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their heart could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. 
They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Can you hear them just stamping their foot as they say that? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. I know you would never say these things. But maybe you wonder about it sometime and maybe it's in your heart. And then you might say these words. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I do all these good things and try not to do bad things for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. That's hard to read, isn't it? And here's the thing. I know what we do. I I do the same thing. You're sitting here in church and you're saying, that's not me. I would never say that kind of thing, but I know someone who would. (laughs) Isn't it always easier to think of people in the third person or our problems on other people? Well, guess what? God knew that. That's why he gave us the word he gave us. He gave us this chapter in the book of Psalms so it could could actually say the things you're almost afraid to say. Because whether you want to admit it or not, it bothers you. It bothers you when people who aren't living right do better than you. And it bothers you when you have problems and other people don't seem to have them. And it bothers you because you feel like, God, come on. I'm a good guy. I'm one of your guys. And the word speaks what we're hard of saying. Not only that, God gives us a picture into people's lives that are in Scripture. And all through the Bible, we get a peek into people's lives that reflect our own in one way or another. Certainly not all the way, but definitely it gives us a peek into someone else's life and we get to see how they live and how they overcome some of the same problems and feelings that, that we have experienced. Let's take a look at Joseph for a minute. Don't you think he would have been justified to feel the way that that chapter in the book of Psalms said? I mean, isn't that Joseph's life? Think about his life. It was horrible. He was hated by his brothers. Remember what Pastor Jeremy said? Don't hate me because I'm pretty. Remember? (laughs) The thing is, Joseph was hated and it wasn't really his fault. Now, he should have kept his mouth shut and shouldn't have told him about the dreams. Yeah, that's all true. But it's very likely that what was happening is that God had given Joseph special gifts of administration and organization. And that's why his father had elevated him over his older adult brothers, even though at the time he was only about 17. And he gave him that coat of many colors, which represented not not just favoritism. It was more than that. It represented authority and position. And because of that, that just chafed his brothers even more. Here's this do-gooder. Everything he does is good, and dad respects everything he does. Had to really bother them. So you know the story. We've talked about it in the last few weeks, and, and you probably knew it anyway. His brothers hated him, and they sold him into slavery. One of his brothers even wanted to just kill him, and the other brothers moderated it and sold him into slavery. And you know what happened. We talked about this last week. He was falsely accused of adultery and rape by a conniving, evil woman who didn't mind seeing him go to prison just because she didn't get what she wanted. She was going to cheat on her husband, but because Joseph said no, she, in her vindictiveness, sent him to prison. And he was falsely accused and probably no trial at all. 
because he didn't have any rights. He was a slave. Not only that, he wasn't even Egyptian. He was Hebrew. And he had been accused by his master's wife, so they throw him in prison. Then he was forgotten by those he helped. He had helped others get ahead, and then they didn't remember him and help him get back up ahead. So he was, he was there for years and years. We, we estimate probably 13 years or so in prison that he didn't, ha- he didn't deserve. Think about this. Those were his young adult years. Those years were stolen from him. And in a sense, you think about those years of vibrancy, those years in his 20s would have been stolen and him languishing in prison. Don't you think he would have been justified in unforgiveness and vengeance? How hard would it have been to go through every one of those days, waking up in a cell, administrating the prison for the prisoners, and not wondering, what were my brothers doing today? What were the ones doing who sold me into slavery, who took away my freedom, my chance at a family, my chance at a future? He could have been very vindictive and angry. He could have been asking himself, where was God's blessing and justice for me? Now, this is a harsh story, and it's one that you know, ends differently, but for all of us, we can relate to it at one time or another. Because there's times where we go through experiences and maybe somebody does something to us and the anger starts to build and then the anger grows into bitterness. And then the bitterness makes us feel like we're justified in jealousy. The thing is that all of us at one time or another, like Joseph, would have been tempted. You could understand the temptation with Potiphar's wife. I mean... Who knows if he would have ever had chance for a family himself, but that temptation a lot of times leads us into sin. And the injustice of it all at times can make us feel like we have a license to sin. It's almost like because of what's been done to us, it's okay if I bend the rules a little bit because I deserved better. And you would never say it this way because when you say it that way, it exposes the sin in it and the in the the vengeance in it and it it exposes the that jealousy that all that's so rank and ugly and we know that but but we don't let those thoughts go through our head and we don't say it that way we just take advantage because we feel like we're owed something it's what we do (laughs) the suffering can turn to self-pity where you you just wallow in the self-pity and people get tired of talking to you because all you can talk about is the self-pity and it wasn't fair and it wasn't fair and you're right And you wear one person out and then go to another person and they hear your story and they say, yeah, that's horrible. I can't believe that happened to you. I'm so sorry for what's gone on in your life. And you wear that person out and self-pity just burrows you further down in a hole. Sad because if you ever had the power, vengeance would be easy for you to imagine. Some way you'll get back at them a little bit. That's what's amazing about this story because Joseph lives by a totally different standard. What makes it even more amazing is you have to understand something. Joseph did not have the Bible that you have. He did not have that to go by. He didn't even have the Old Testament. He had nothing. None of the Bible that you know of was written at the time Joseph lived. He lived this and he lived in the morality that we are all aspiring to without that guide of scripture. He didn't have that. He didn't have a church. He didn't have a church home. He didn't have a, a, a family to walk him through these problems and come around him. 
He didn't have a life group to lean on. He didn't have friends at church to call. He had none of that. And yet we see him live above and beyond all of these things. He still lived honorably. Here's what my word is for you today. For any of you who have felt abandoned or betrayed or wronged or slandered or robbed or forgotten, there's hope for you today. Today, God has something for the bruised and the confused. I said God has something for the bruised and confused. Because you have been taken advantage of. And there's times when you've been done wrong. And there's a God who knows. And there's justice for you. He has that for you. He has it for you. Joseph. Joseph. At the time we're jumping into the story, he's going to look more like this than he would a Hebrew slave. Because the Hebrews looked totally different. They were actually known for wearing beards. They were known for being being not only farmers, but also shepherds. They were known for, for being a little bit unkept because they would have been out in the fields. Totally, totally different than the way the Egyptian nobles would have dressed. Here, they would have shaved every part of their body, including their eyebrows, and they would have drawn all that on. He would have looked totally, totally different. Totally different. Probably would have even worn a wig because they wouldn't have necessarily had their hair look like that, but it would have been something like this. We know that he'd been elevated over all of, all of the people of Egypt to run the country. And he was presiding over, he'd already presided over the seven prosperous years of famine that, or before the famine that he had prophesied would happen because of the dream Pharaoh had. He's right in the middle of that, probably two years into the seven lean years that are coming up. And already people are running out of food. Already the famine has spread over the whole known area. Already back home, his brothers and his family are starting to run out of food and they're starting to starve. So somebody says, we've heard that there's grain in Egypt. They have no idea that Joseph is in charge of all this. And so what they do is they come to Egypt to buy grain. And when this happens, Joseph is, is personally presiding over this. I wonder if you can even imagine the day, the day this happens. I don't know how it's going. If Joseph is, is working on the ledger, or if he's keeping track somewhere, he may have been, he probably wouldn't have been personally involved in measuring out grain or anything like that, but he would have been overseeing. And maybe the word would have come that, hey, there's people even coming from Canaan. This famine is bad. Maybe that perked his ears and he said, really, from Canaan? Who's coming from Canaan? So he might have gone and looked. And when he looked, I wonder what emotions overwhelmed him. Those were his brothers, most of his brothers, 10 of his brothers, not his younger brother who was born of the same mother, but his 10 half brothers, the very ones who had sold him into slavery. And if you remember last week, he was in the pit and they were talking about his future and he's begging for his life. Those brothers. What could he have thought? <laughs> it's interesting. You wonder. Somehow he comes up with this plan. Here's the beauty of it. Through all of this, he saw God's hand in all of it. In the middle of his pain, in the middle of all that had been done for him, he still sees God's plan. 
So he has the brothers come before him. And when they came before him, they wouldn't have come like even this close like us in a church setting. He would have been way up high and they would have been way down low. If you can think of the way the Egyptians did everything. And you, we've all seen pictures and maybe some of you have even been there with the huge carved statues. He would have been elevated way up above to further emphasize his authority over them and their powerlessness before him and the mighty Egypt. That's the way it would have been. And when he come, they come before him, he starts asking them questions. Where have you come from? And who are your brothers? And who is your parents? And they're just answering. They don't know why they're being asked these questions. They probably assume everybody gets asked. They don't know what's going on. But the questions start to get more and more probing. And he starts to ask, how many brothers do you have? Knowing exactly what the answer is. And they start to answer. And he puts them into prison for three days. Speculation probably the prison he had been in they start to get a taste of what joseph lived for years and years and years they live it for three days no comparison really to what he went through but then he tells them you're gonna have to come back when you come back to buy food again you have to bring your younger brother this time and immediately they start asking talking to themselves because they're they're, they're totally caught by surprise in all of this because they can't understand why would he want this why would he demand this and why would he demand for the younger brother? So the Bible says that speaking among themselves, remember, they don't know this is Joseph. They're speaking in their native language in Hebrew, the language that Joseph grew up with. So he knows every word they're speaking. And maybe this has happened to you. Maybe some of you are, are bilingual and you've been in a, in a place where people don't know you understand their language and they just speak so freely. This is a very pivotal moment in the story. In this moment, let's look and what, see what we see. Speaking among themselves, Clearly, we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. They're taking responsibility for their actions at this moment. This probably turned because I wonder if Joseph at this point didn't know if he was going to not exact revenge, but punish them for what their sin. But now he hears that they are taking responsibility for their sin. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in all this trouble. Their sin has found them, them out. Then this line right here. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben said, but you wouldn't listen. And now we have to answer for his blood. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but it's easy to miss. Reuben was the oldest brother. He should have been the one to inherit all uh, the double portion. He was the one pleading for the younger brother. It's interesting because he also says, one of you is going to have to stay behind while you take the rest of this food. One of you is going to stay behind in prison. You choose which one. And they're discussing it. And then Joseph chooses. And he chooses Simeon. Speculated that Simeon may have been the one who wanted Joseph to be killed. Or maybe he was the most angry at Joseph when they were young. It's hard to know. But that's what ends up happening. They couldn't have known. They couldn't have known that Joseph understood every word. But what Joseph saw in them was at least a beginning and a measure of repentance for their sin. So they go back home. They tell their dad everything. Their dad is totally overwhelmed. He's freaked out. There's no way he's going to let his youngest son go. And he tells him, I've already lost Joseph. I'm not going to lose Benjamin too. That's not going to happen. But eventually, the food runs out. There's more to the story because Joseph is, is just playing with them. He's toying with them. He puts all their money back in their bags. And when they get home, they're thinking, what has happened here? 
We can't go back to this guy. He's already treated us and called us spies. And he's held Simeon back in prison. When we go back, what are we going to do? But they have to go back. They're out of food. So when they go back, their dad relents. He sends, he agrees to send him, uh, to send Benjamin. And in the middle of all this, all this is going on. He puts double the money back. And then he also sends some of the products of Israel back. I wonder what Joseph thought when he saw that, because he may not have been able to have those things as, as available as he had in his youth. Would have been things like honey and balsam, and, and it would have been things like resin and pistachio nuts and almonds, things like that that didn't necessarily grow in Egypt. So Benjamin is there. The Bible says that Joseph prepares this dinner for them, and he sits them in order of their birth. Can you imagine what it would have been like when they come in and Probably a slave or a servant is directing them to a seat. And as they're sitting down, they're thinking, well, this is weird. How do they know this? This is bizarre. Because at this point, they're all adults. It's not like they look younger, except for Benjamin would have looked younger. Who, how would they have known that? And then they have the dinner, and then they get ready to go. And, and he tells his attendants, put their money back in their bags again. And this time, take my personal cup and put it in Benjamin's sack. Now, as I've been studying and researching this, it's very likely Joseph would not have eaten at their table. The reason would be because the Hebrews would have been dirty and unclean to the Egyptians. The Egyptians, kind of like the way that the Jews treated all the other Gentiles, that they wouldn't eat with them or go in their houses. Well, the Egyptians felt the same way about almost everybody, and including the Hebrews. They wouldn't have eaten with them. They would have eaten apart from them, and they would have been at a separate table. So this cup that would have gone in Benjamin's bag would have been a very special utensil that would have been owned only by Joseph. Of course, the story goes, they're on their way there. Joseph sends somebody, send somebody after him, and when they capture him, they say, how could you steal from us and, and then steal my master's cup? And of course, the brothers, they say, there's no way we would have done that. And they're totally confused. They have no idea what's going on, but this cup is found in Benjamin's bag. And that's where we jump back into the story here. And it says, Judah answers and he says, oh, my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins, my Lord. We have all returned to be your slaves, all of us, not just our brother who had his cup in his sack. No, Joseph says, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. This is very interesting what happens next. Then Judah steps forward. Judah's not the oldest or the second oldest. But at this point, he is the leader, and he takes command. It's interesting, at least in one way, because we know that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. It's just interesting. Because what he offers, he says, please, my Lord, let your servant stay. Just one word, say just one word to you. Please do not let be angry with me, even though you are as powerful as Pharaoh himself. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. Judah offers himself. It's kind of a forethought and a forepicture of God offering his son. Judah is the, the far, forefather of Jesus who offers himself. And Judah here says, I will be the slave. Joseph's overwhelmed. He sees the change in his brothers. He sees all this right in front of him. And the Bible says he couldn't stand it any longer. There were many people in the room and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. He breaks down and he weeps. And he weeps so loud that the Egyptians could hear him. And word of it quickly 
carried to Pharaoh's palace. And what he does is he, he tells them that I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. I'm sure they were stunned. I'm sure they were just overwhelmed with fear. They were afraid before. Now they're really afraid. This isn't just some random, you know, Egyptian guy that's picking on them. This is the brother that they sold into slavery. They were just, the fear, and if, if we were to read the rest of the story, once Jacob passes away, they still, you find out they were still afraid. And they come to Joseph and say, now that our father's dead, are you going to put us in slavery? They were mortally, mortally afraid. This, this part of the story just blows my mind. Joseph could have done anything to them. He had complete power in Egypt at this time. No one would have asked. No one would have questioned. He could have done anything. Any justice he wanted, he could have had. Any retribution or, or vengeance he wanted, he could have had. Let me just say this. Most of us will never, ever, ever experience this position of power that Joseph had. You, you may be in a situation someday to, to see vengeance on somebody who's wronged you, but you will never really fully realize what Joseph had in his hand at that moment. Here's something else to think about. When those brothers sold their, their, their younger brother Joseph into slavery, they, they had very good confidence that they would never be caught. They knew that that caravan was going to Egypt and they were going back to Israel. Who's going to know? No one would know. You ever wonder what it was like for them? I mean, they were shepherds. They had a lot of time on their hands. There would be times where they were sitting around the fire, and I imagine one of them might have said to another, do you ever think about Joseph? And I'm sure one of the brothers would say, shut up, I don't want to talk about it. I'm sure somebody would say, I wonder if it was a horrible death. And then somebody else might say, no, I'm sure he's fine. But they had to have been riddled with guilt for years and years. Here's the thing. God will find you out. There's this, this verse in in Numbers, where it says, if you fail to keep your word, then you will have sinned against the Lord, and you be sure that your sin will find you out. That had to be overwhelming them that day. And Joseph calls them closer, maybe even up onto the platform he would have stood on. And he says, he says, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. I am your brother. This is divine justice. You know, I think there's times where we think, you know, something happens to somebody or, or whatever, and you think, oh, good, they had it coming. Here, here's the thing to think about, though. Not only will your sins find you out, but God also has reward for you. Here's the thing. That ledger we talked about a minute ago where all you're good and all you're bad, God does notice that. It doesn't earn you salvation, but he does care. He does know. That injustice you feel... He felt it. You, you realize he was killed for all of us when he did no wrong. He stood in our place of judgment. He was beaten and crucified for us. He knows what injustice is. And his heart is with you who love and follow him. He knows about it. He loves you and he cares about it. And it breaks his heart just like it does yours. When I talk about divine justice, it's not just about your sins, but also the good. He knows both sides of that. Nothing in creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one 
to whom we are accountable. He knows and he loves. And Joseph goes on. This, this is where this, well, let me just say, God governs our griefs with, for our good. He takes those things and he turns them into good. Look at Joseph's story here. He says to his brothers, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was, I want you to notice something, how many times he says, it was God. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here and not you, and he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh and the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. Did you count? Four times. Three times he says God, and the third, fourth time he says it was he. Four times. He always recognized that God was working in all of this. I'd like the worship team to join me up here. Notice that in the middle of all of this, Joseph sees God's hand and God's guidance. All of the time. He always sees God working in these things. He always had an attitude to please God. When Joseph was tempted to commit adultery, what did he say? He didn't say, I can't do this thing because Potiphar has given me a good life here. That's not what he said. He said, I can't do this thing because I can't sin against God. His heart was always for God, always in the middle of all of it. And like I mentioned before, he didn't have a Bible to guide him into this. He didn't have a church family to guide him into this. He hadn't heard sermon after sermon like most of us. The fact is, his heart was after God. He was always seeking God's heart. When he was falsely imprisoned and he was told of the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer, he didn't say, oh, I got this. I can can figure this out. He said, no, only God can do this. Always God. Later, when Pharaoh had the dreams and he was in Pharaoh's presence and Pharaoh said, I've heard that you can figure this out for me. He said, no, I can't. But God can. Always God. Always God. He was always pointing to God. Even when he did have his sons, he had Manasseh and Ephraim. And Ephraim and Manasseh ended up getting the double portion that should have and would have gone to Reuben had Reuben not sinned so much. Those names are significant. Manasseh means God has made me forget all my trouble. It's always about God. Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. It was about God. And then that classic statement in Genesis 50, 20, where it says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And then that passage we just read in chapter 45, all those times, God sent me before you to preserve life, and God sent me before you. God, it's always about God. Of course, none of this exempts the brothers of their sin. Of course, that's not true. I mean, that's not what happened. What it means is that we serve a God who is always taking evil and working it into good. I don't know who's wronged you in your life. I don't know. I don't know what part of your life you're frustrated with, or maybe things haven't worked out the way you thought they would, or maybe somebody's failed you. Maybe you failed, and you know it's your fault. I know this, though. We serve a God who takes all of those things into account, and he knows the ledger. He knows the good you've done, and he knows the evil, and he he takes it all, and he loves you in the middle of it, and he wants to work all those things for your good. I know that, and you know that. But it can be tough sometimes when when life's not fair or when things happen that you just don't think add up. 
Maybe you've been sitting here today and maybe you haven't even become a Christian before because you just felt like it wasn't fair. And maybe you've been sitting here and you, you think for the first time that maybe you'd be willing to follow Christ because if it's true that he loves you this much and he died for you even though it wasn't fair and that he would walk with you through all of life's issues, that maybe you would consider him today. I'm going to ask you to shut your eyes just for the sake of privacy. And I'm going to ask this question first. If you're sitting here today and maybe you're thinking, I do want to follow God, but I've never followed him before. If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand real quick and we could pray with you. It's as simple as that. Anybody at all? All right, let me, with your eyes still closed, I want to ask a second question. Maybe today you've been sitting here and you've thought, I thought I had it bad. I didn't really think about Joseph and what he went through. But maybe there's things in your life where you've been frustrated because you've, that Psalm 73 we read before that, that maybe you felt like you followed him and, and what was it worth? Maybe you've been frustrated with him. Anybody would admit to that today that you've been just a little frustrated with God? Would you raise your hand? Some hands went up before I was even finished asking that question. All right, you can put them down. Let me ask another question. Maybe you've, Maybe just in general, you think, God, I, want, I, I hear what Pastor Dennis is saying today, but I need you to assure me that you know who I am and that you've still got this plan ahead for me because I'm, I'm starting to wonder. Anybody like that, you're just struggling and you just need his reassurance with you. I see those hands too. Older, younger, a lot of people are raising their hands. Stand with me if you would. I'm going to ask those who help us pray, pastors, board prayer team, wives, husbands, if you would come for a minute to help us pray. I'm going to do this with us today. The worship team's going to play through a song again, and what I'd like to do is open these altars for you. If you're interested or you need someone to pray with you, you can give them as little or as much detail as you want, but if there's something you're working through and you just need help praying, it could be for healing, it could be for any of those issues we mentioned. But I just want to give you an opportunity to come and pray with somebody today, and then we'll close the service in just a minute.